0: So well, today we're into the first session. Today we want to answer the question, at least for starters, Microchurch, what is it and how do you justify it? And so I've put together a definition and let me just kind of run through the definition really quickly and then I to take some time to break it down. It's an intentionally small, autonomous or semi-autonomous, reproductive congregation that's led by a bivocational pastor or a bivocational church planter now you may want to differ a little bit in terminology co-vocational bivocational whatever the point is that we used to see that as a loser somebody who went to seminary and they couldn't get the church big enough to support themselves because money drives way too much in church and then they had to fall back we're looking at intentionality here and and, and aspirational leadership We want to do this, and we see that there's value in this. And so we're going for the intentionally small. You know, I built the churches that I pastored out of several verses of Scripture. One of them was Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. And these people met for the apostles' teaching, for fellowship, for breaking bread, for prayer. Um, They were giving generously to each other. And then the Lord was adding daily among their neighbors, those who should be saved. And as I, I look at that, I used to do a teaching called New Testament Church Architecture. And I would just break those verses down to what works in a large group and what works in a small group. And one of the things that I think that we have done, uh, especially in recent years, is we've ignored the power of the small group when it's really a group. You know, when, when I'm talking about intentionally small, I'm talking about you can get together and share a meal, not just... You know, we have a little bit of snacks before we meet or some coffee and donuts or whatever. But you you share a meal because people really talk and open up when when they share a meal. And and that you're intentionally small. You're trying to build relationships. I took education classes in college. And I was taught that lecture is the most efficient manner of communication. In other words, if I just do the talking and you do the listening, I can get a lot of data out the door. But it's not the most effective manner of communication. In fact, I was taught that discussion groups are the most effective means of communication. Well, I don't even think that's true. I think sitting around somebody's dinner table or sitting on the back porch telling stories and sometimes telling the same stories over and over and over again. But just sharing life is the most effective manner of communication. That has to start in a small group. And we need to learn to become intentionally small about planting microchurches. And then I use the words autonomous or semi-autonomous. Now, um, some people want to keep this thing really close. They want to control it. It's a department of the church, no autonomy at all. Now, total autonomy is we cut you loose, you're on your own, bye. And I don't think that's really the way it should work. I think it should be more like a hub and spoke. Uh, There's a book that I wrote called Mega Multi Micro for Exponential. And I started that book with a story of a large church in Sri Lanka. We'll get into that in detail in another session. But th- this church has maintained a relationship with over 2,000 micro churches. Some micro churches have grown into the hundreds of people. And the mother church is about 2,000 people. They are all over Sri Lanka. They're all over Southeast Asia. They're into Muslim countries, Hindu countries. They're doing some pretty incredible things. But... They have kind of found a sweet spot in semi-autonomy. We're part of a network. We have input. We have relationship. But you're free to make your own choices. If you believe in somebody, we don't have to know his name. We believe in that person too. A microchurch should be reproductive. And, you know, we'll probably get into this more later. But the short version of reproductive is That the leader raises somebody up to take the group over and then the leader leaves. Because once you get people together in close and tight-knit fellowship and they love each other, the last thing they want to do is think about hiving off another group. And the only person in the group that's got the power to make that happen is the leader. And the best way to do it is to take somebody with you and go, bye, I'm out the door. And then the idea of it being led bivocationally. You know, uh, there's all kinds of opportunities here. There's a guy who pastored a church and fell back to driving the school bus. Now he's figured out that he can get a better job. He's got a career. He's discouraged about ministry. He quits pastoral ministry. You could go back and help him to retool around. Keep your career. It's a wonderful thing. And let's go forward with something that's a little smaller that looks an awful lot like church. Not a little church trying to look like a big church, but a little church trying to exploit all the possibilities of a little church. And of course, there are these people who are in touch with other people that we're not going to reach in the churches that we pastor. When I was in Honolulu, the last church that I was in, it was a half mile from where the richest people on the island lived. And some of them actually came and visited our church, but never more than once. We were just too middle class for them. On the other extreme, we had guys coming out of jail. They'd come visit us. I remember one girl had done some ministry in the women's prison. And she was just in love with our church. And she'd listen on the radio, and everything was wonderful. She brought her whole family to church that first Sunday that she got out. And then we never saw them again. And so how do we reach these people? Well, probably by people who have a job who can afford to start small and maybe start with one person and disciple that person and then their friend and then their friend and whatever, and money's not a driver in this whole thing. You'll notice that in the next few weeks, I'm going to talk about money an awful lot because it's just occupied too important a position in the churches that we've built, in the churches that I've pastored. It's like, we got to make budget in a hurry, so let's play musical chairs with the other churches and and gather a congregation as fast as we can. You don't have to do that if you're thinking microchurch. Now, almost immediately when we get into the concept of microchurch, people start to think of an ecclesial minimum. Now, that's a big fancy way of saying, you know, what's the smallest or, you know, the, 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 the least complicated thing that I would actually call a church? And, and, and so I want to look at it in two different ways. One is in, in terms of appearance and the other is in terms of. Of function, perhaps I should put function first because form does follow function. But I'm going to stick to appearance. Jesus said, "If two or more are together in my name, there I am in the midst of them." And I think that defines the church wherever it happens to be located. I tell a story of a young woman in Japan. I was teaching about how to do micro church inside a congregation, in other words, what we called at the time mini church, and it was. A close relationship with the Sunday message and all that, and and so the kind of the the, the model. And now imagine a church is twenty eight people in Japan, and so a, a, a small group is going to be three people or two people or whatever. And this young woman was the only young single adult in a church of mostly middle aged and older middle aged people, and she really bought into the teaching that I did and. And, uh, and and she was all excited, and she asked a lot of questions. A year later, I'm back there, and she comes up to me with a question. She goes, Pastor Ralph, tell me, what is the smallest mini church that you could possibly have? And I go, well, two people. Jesus said two or more, da, da, da. And she goes, wrong answer. And it's like, you know, for a Japanese woman to say that to an American man, wrong answer is pretty bold and brazen here. But she tells about how she would go to McDonald's with her Bible And notes she'd taken on the pastor's sermon on the weekend. And those famous three questions that I'm always asking, what did the Holy Spirit say to you while the pastor's talking? What are you going to do about it? And how can we help you? She'd ask herself those questions. She'd sit in McDonald's. And in Japan, they have a Bible that's worse than the King James Bible because it's several centuries older. So it's very hard for people to understand. It's big and thick and black. And so she's at McDonald's doing this week after week after week. And finally, some girl comes up and says, what are you doing? She notices the Bible. And boom, they got a mini church of two people. And it goes on from there. And and so I think that we have to honor the small. Now, I have heard people say, well, unless it's big enough to have an elder board, it, 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 tell me where that is in the Bible. I don't get it. You know, in Acts chapter 14, Paul gets beat up, runs back through the towns and and appoints elders from among the disciples in every city. I doubt they had a board structure in mind. In fact, if it's not in the New Testament, I think it's probably extraneous to what we're actually trying to do. But then let's get down to function. And, and you know, I've heard people reduce this to three functions. I'm going to put four, and sometimes I'll expand it to to the seven that I find in Acts chapter 2 toward the end of the chapter. But... I think you have to have community, and a whole lot of that is summarized in Acts chapter 2. I think you have to have the Word. If you don't have the teaching of the Word, what do you got? And then there needs to be some form of worship. And worship should take the form of obedience, Romans 12 worship, rather than we sing a couple songs with the guitar in church. And then there should be an externally focused mission. So I'm thinking that you don't really have church if you don't have all four of these things, community, the word, some form of worship, and then a community focused mission. You're doing something for somebody outside of yourselves. Uh, and, and, and it's not just helping on Sunday put cars in the right parking spaces in the parking lot. It has to do with the local community. I can recall at the beginning of COVID. Uh, one of my friends started noticing the McDonald's workers in the parking lot across from where their church is. It's a little church in a strip mall, and began to think these are frontline workers. And he went out and bought donuts for people, and just you know he wasn't even sure they'd accept them. But he found some people outside for a smoke at McDonald's, and he comes up with his box of Krispy Kremes, and the people started crying. They said, "We've been spit on. We've been yelled at. You're the first person that showed us kindness." That's community-oriented mission. It can be as simple as picking up stuff on the highway, but mostly it ought to relate to people being with other people who are a little different than them and certainly not a part of the church. And then lastly, I want to just end this by talking about uh, norms. And when I'm talking about norms, I'm talking about the the New Testament. And uh, I, I think that you need to begin as you're thinking about microchurch, picking scriptures that fit with the concept that we're talking about or the concept is is null and void it's useless and so you know there's a book that came out recently it talks about right brain versus left brain and right brain is where we do art and you know all music and and enjoy and bonding with other people it's the right brain that will flash on an ECG on a baby when it sees its parents it's, it's the right brain where we learn character because we want to please the people that we love, that, that love us, that we feel accepted by. This is why uh, street gangs are so important and and negatively important, but they're important. That young people get sucked into a group of people who accept them. And one of the things that we're missing in church when we all sit in pews and we all look forward and somebody delivers you know, a wonderful sermon is... That, that there isn't really a group that's very accepting and loving that's up close enough to actually be that. And so I, I'm looking at, at Acts chapter 2 to 5, and I see the development of this mega church, but it's got the small side attached to it. But as I look at the book of Acts and I see things maturing, Then I start to pick up Acts chapter 14 that I just referenced. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 14, where Paul writes to a bunch of strangers and says, I'm convinced that you are full of goodness, Holy Spirit work. You have all knowledge. They got the Bible and you're able to teach one another. People are more capable of doing things than we give them credit for. You know, I grew up in church where they had to train you to do anything. Hey, these people run banks. They run law offices, they work in PTAs, they teach in school, and we got to teach them how to do a Sunday school class. Something's wrong with us, not them. But then I want to roll over into Romans chapter 16. And, you know, if, if, if you're like me, you've kind of looked at that chapter. just well, It's just a list of Paul's friends, whatever. But there's some really important clues there. He talks about the church that meets at the house of Priscilla and Aquila, who risked their necks for me. So here we get church contextualized in a home. And then we hear about Aristobulus and his household. We hear about Narcissus and his household. We hear about Gaius and his household. These are churches. And do and, and we need to pull this together and begin to stretch our imagination and start to go, if we were to look at the New Testament a little differently than we have, because we tend, no matter who we are, to look at the Bible through the culture around us you know somebody said recently the sadness about the last 40 years is that the whole seeker driven thing we let the culture disciple the church rather than the church discipling the culture well you may not be that extreme i'm not that extreme but i will certainly cop to the fact that i tend to see everything through the eyes of what goes on around me you know I look at Walmart right now. They're doing a phenomenal job of trying to compete with Amazon in terms of home delivery. You know, my wife buys all of her groceries off of Walmart. We don't want to go to the store now. And COVID passed. We don't want to go to the store. And the interesting thing about Walmart is they're so service oriented. You know, these guys, if, if they're out of something, then they'll, they'll upgrade and give you the better product for the same price. Or if they only have the larger size, they give you the larger size for the same price as the thing that you ordered. Contrast that with, I'm trying to refinance my mortgage right now. And wonderful people, wonderful company, I've worked with them before. They are one of the rare ones that on their website will actually tell you everything about their rates. It doesn't happen often. Usually you got to argue with a whole bunch of people and try to cut through a bunch of stuff. But these people are really good at what they do. Their tech department just sucks. You know, I I, I I go online. I create a new account. I fill in some stuff. Two days later, they tell me, go back on that account and fill in some more stuff. I can't get back on that account. So I call somebody up. They spend two hours on the phone with me. Useless. And then they say, well, we're putting in a tech order and you contact them in 48 hours. Now, whoever heard of that, the tech department supposed to contact the customer, but 48 hours later, I call and I actually come back to not the tech department, but some customer service person who insists on taking me through exactly what I went through on my own before. And then a customer service rep put me through on my own again and then threw up her hands and and said, I can't do it. The tech people have to do it. I can't get to the tech people. And then they keep sending me little things about fill this out, fill this out. And every time I I go back, and I tell them about my problem. And now the, the sales reps are trying to help me with the tech problem. I never, ever get any help from a tech person. And so I've got, I'm kind of beefed about this, if you can tell. And uh, some lady just called me just before I started doing this and wanted to take me back through the whole process again and offered to get me a new loan officer I could talk to. The problem isn't the loan officer. The problem is the tech people. Now, I look at our church and how we're supporting people not through the eyes of the New Testament. I bet you you do the same thing. I'm looking at our church and how we support people through the eyes of companies that I've had a wonderful experience with and a bad experience with. And now I want to look at the church and see how the church is doing. Rather than going back to the Bible and extrapolating from Scripture, because you must extrapolate. We live in a different culture than they do. But but what, what, what they gave us is enduring what they gave us is eternal what they give us can i say it is absolute now how's that work in my culture and that's what we're going to do in the next few weeks as we go through these various modules on on microchurch and microchurch networks and and how we can multiply ministry without spending a lot of money